Um, why don't we Why don't we pray and get started? I never do. Okay. I, I just need to speak up. Okay, I'll speak up. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for the mercy you've shown to each one of us to bring us to this point in our lives, to this evening. Thank you for giving us a little time to study together, to be encouraged by your word, to be trained up to know you better. Father, please use what we do here to prepare us to serve you better in the future. May your spirit be our teacher. We pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Okay. Um, If you can't hear me, please tell me, okay? I think my voice is okay, but Gary says I'm kind of soft. All right. In the first hour, we're going to continue studying angelology. And our next hour, we'll be moving on to eschatology. Okay? Last week, we spoke about what angels are in general. They are created spirit beings without permanent bodies. They are immortal, but not eternal. They fall into two categories today. There are the holy angels and the fallen angels. Fallen angels are also called demons or devils or evil spirits, a number of different things. Okay, I want to just, I'm going to just zip through this very quickly. I just want to say these things. We don't have time to look them up. I think you're familiar with these things, but what I want to do is just go through and see some of the things that the holy angels do. They actually do a lot of things that are mentioned in Scripture. They serve God in a number of ways. They praise Him and worship Him. And by the way, the the listings that I've put up of verses up here are not complete. There are more in your notes for each of these examples, or at least for most of them. They serve Him zealously. They wage warfare against Satan. They applauded God's creative work. Back in the book of Job, it says, Where were you when the morning stars sang for joy while I was creating the universe? They appear before God and they report to God. And apparently this is something that both the holy angels and the fallen angels do. And if you want something that will kind of blow your categories, ask yourself this question and don't expect me to answer it. Why is it that fallen, sinful, eternally unsavable, certainly damned angels can go into the presence of God? Interesting thought, isn't it? But they can, and they do, on a regular basis, Pat. Yeah, we talked to that one about, you know, the, the angel that volunteers to be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets of Baal. That's, I think that that's a good angel agreeing to masquerade as a fallen angel. But we know that Satan went into the throne room of God to accuse Job. We know that he is the accuser of the brethren today. We know that Christ, as our advocate, is defending us against those accusations. So it seems to be true that fallen angels have access to God. I don't think he uses them in the same way that he uses the holy angels, no. But they do go before him. 
In fact, I think they go in there kind of to harass him, if you will, in a way. Vicki. You know, that's a good question. I suspect that there are other angels that go in. I don't know if I can think of a specific case um, of a fallen angel being in the presence of God. I'd have to think about that. But none comes to my mind off the top of my head. Good question. Now, at the second coming of Christ, the archangel Michael will announce the rapture. The angels will be agents of divine judgment during the tribulation. If you read through the book of Revelation, when the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls are enacted, it is angels who are the agents in the outpouring of those judgments upon the earth. We know that angels will accompany Christ when he returns to the earth at the second coming. We know that angels will be involved in separating the wheat from the tares at the second coming. When Christ comes back, and we'll talk about this in our ST5 course, he will come back to an earth on which there will be living, saved folks and unsaved folks. And the angels will be involved in separating those into the wheat and the tares, or in the words of Christ in Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. Holy angels minister to the world at large in, in some ways. We don't know a lot about this. We know that Michael is the special protector of the nation of Israel. And there's something in Daniel chapter 4 about the watchers. And I wish it said more. But they seem to have something to do with observing events in earthly kingdoms. And I can't really tell you much more about that. Now, the holy angels have ministries to the unrighteous. They announced coming judgment. In Genesis 19, they said, watch out, it's coming. In Revelation chapter 14, they're going to make a proclamation to the world at large of coming judgments. Angels impose judgment. Now, there's the interesting case. I think the Second Kings one is the one where the angel of the Lord kills a bunch of Sennacherib soldiers. I can't remember off the top of my head. That may be Christ himself, if you take the angel of the Lord to be Christ. But in Acts chapter 12, we've got a case of angels being involved in judgment. In Revelation, obviously, there's a lot. This, this one is kind of redundant. We've talked about it earlier. This one is also redundant, but we've specified it here to the unrighteous. Um, to Christian believers, Hebrews chapter 1 gives us this little hint that angels have a role of ministering, and it says, to those who will inherit salvation. <coughs> now, is that saying that angels protect, uh, protect, protect, elect unbelievers until they get saved? Is that what it's saying? Those who will inherit salvation? Or is it simply saying that angels have a role in the lives of those who are saved. When it says will be saved, is it talking about being saved after you die? Or is it talking about the transition from being unsaved to saved? I don't know the answer to that question. But they have a special role. Um, angels were agents in the preparation of Scripture. This, there's a little hint in Galatians chapter 3 that says angels were involved in giving the Word of God. Exactly how they 
serve in that process or served in that process. We don't know details of it. Angels sometimes carry out answers to prayer. I honestly don't remember what this one is. Acts chapter 12, verse 5. Oh, okay. This is when an angel frees Peter from prison in response to the prayers of the church. He is sent as an agent of God to get Peter out of jail. Now, here's a big one, and I put stars next to this. And we'll talk about this a little bit in our section on ecclesiology. Angels have a particular curiosity about the church, and they observe the church looking for evidence of God's manifold wisdom. And if in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there's that thing about head coverings, and the point is that when men and women in the church behave in a way that does not reflect God's instituted hierarchy of authority, that shames God before the watching angels. Ephesians chapter 3 basically says that unity in the church gives a visible demonstration to the watching angels of the manifold wisdom of God who can take a bunch of knuckleheads like us and make us get along and accomplish something together. It's a very interesting theme to study this and we'll do it a little bit in the future. Angels direct believers in ministry at times. Um, I think we've got... Is this come over to Macedonia? I don't even remember what these are. Anybody remember what these are that I've got here? Let's just look at one of them. Let's look at Acts 10.3. Ah, okay, this is the angel who speaks to Cornelius and says, send for Peter in Joppa. <clears throat> and you can look up the other ones on your own. Angels somehow minister to those who are saved when they die. In Luke chapter 16, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, it says that Lazarus dies and he is accompanied to Abraham's bosom by angels. Um, that's an interesting thing. Could be. And is that a normative thing? I don't know the answer to the question. Does it always happen? I mean, I've, I've heard stories of people who on their deathbed would say, I see the angels coming for me. And, and I have no reason to doubt that in particular. Well, oh, that's a great question. That's, that's, that's a great question. This, this, cracks, this cracks me up because when I was a kid, I grew up in a Unitarian and Jewish family. We celebrated both Hanukkah and Christmas. And we had a crash set with the baby Jesus. And there was an angel that hung at the peak of the, you know, of the manger building. And she had a little sign behind her head. And it said Gloria. And my little sister thought her name was Gloria. <laughs> and I didn't know any better. But, of course, that angel was in female form. Angels in female form, I think, are a corruption of the biblical data that probably came in with Renaissance art. I don't really know where it started. But I've, I don't know any evidence in Scripture that angels have sex per se. They seem to be male off the top. 
Yeah, there's the you know, it talks about the woman with in the head wings. Yes. Yes, that's the that's the only case of something that looks like a female angel. I'm inclined though to agree with what you said initially, which is that they basically don't have sex. Since they're not reproducing, the need for sex in the sense that we have male and female doesn't seem to be there. But generally they're addressed as male. Yes, yes. Angels, the sons of God mentioned in Genesis that come down and create the giants. Not create, but we'll get to that next week. Oh, okay. We'll get to that next week. It's in your notes, by the way. Okay, a little bit more. Angels announce important events. They praise God at the creation. They announce Christ's first coming, as you know. They will announce the rapture and the second coming. So those are some of the things they do. It's, it's not an absolutely complete list. It's a fairly complete list. <clears throat> Here's something I think we need to emphasize. Okay. Although the angels carry out many important roles and are often over men in God's plan, we are forbidden to worship them and all holy angels will enforce that prohibition at their own expense. In other words, if you encounter a holy angel and you try to worship it, it's going to say, stop, stop, stop. Now, we know of cases that that happened in the book of Revelation. I think there's at least one other in the scripture. Now, this leads to a final observation. We're not done with angels yet, but... Any angelic or spirit being that seeks worship or honor or obedience for anyone or to anyone but God and according to his word is not a holy angel. Now you wonder why I'm pounding the pulpit on this. I'm pounding the pulpit on this because in the Philippines I met lots of people who believed that they had had encounters with angels and in some cases those encounters involved beings that expected to be bowed to and treated in special ways or even be given sacrifices. Okay? You know, in our culture at this time in history, this isn't a big deal. Not too many of us have seen angels or have been tempted to worship them. But Satan works at different ways, in different ways at different times and different places, and that may change. Sure. Yeah, now if Joseph Smith had understood this, there would be no Mormons. So we need to be careful of that. All right. Absolutely. That's a tornado siren? Yeah, we've got a police department a block up the road, and I would think that doesn't sound like a tornado siren to me. Yeah, when that thing goes off, you'll know it. It, it. I'm glad you said that, and we'll keep our ears peeled. Yeah. I thought you were going to ask me about tornadoes and angels, and I was going to be utterly, utterly helpless. Yeah, yeah. The Wicked Witch of the West. 
Um, there isn't really anything that I know in Scripture that explicitly speaks about the eternal destiny of the holy angels, but I don't see any reason to expect anything but that they will be in the new heavens and new earth with us. It does, that's right. Well, no, 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 no. Hold, hold. That, that's a, well, okay, that's a great question, Karen. Let, let's talk about that a little bit, okay? Um, that is an annoying thing, isn't it? Whatever it is. You really think that's a warning? Yeah, but that's not a tornado siren. Yeah, I mean, it, it'll just knock you over. It sounds to me like it's something... Now that's that's something on that's something on the roof oscillating in the wind, I think. I think we're okay. All right, let's let's talk about Karen's question. Okay. Um, what Scripture says is that in the new heavens and earth, we will have resurrection bodies like these bodies. Bodies that will be physical, that will be tangible, that will be recognizable, we'll be able to eat, drink, sleep, play. We'll be able to do everything we can do now and possibly additional things. Um, angels, as far as we know, do not have permanent physical bodies. They're capable of taking physical form and capable, it seems, of interacting with the physical world. I mean, you got an angel who opens a gate, you know, in a jail. He doesn't go up there and go like this and his hand goes through it because he can't grab it like Casper the Friendly Ghost, you know. By the way, do you ever remember, do you remember Casper the Friendly Ghost? He'd go through walls, but he also could grab a doorknob and open the door. And you think, how can he grab that if he's a spirit? It didn't make any sense. But... Um, the only sense in which we will be like the angels that scripture speaks of is that in the resurrection we won't marry or be given in marriage. Um, but I think we will be fundamentally very different because we are inherently designed to be physical and angels aren't. Now, will we be able to fly? I certainly hope so, but I don't, I don't see any evidence in scripture of that either. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, let's go on and let's talk about Satan. His creation and his fall. Please turn, if you will, to Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, some theologians refuse to recognize in Ezekiel 28 the presence of Satan. They say this is only about a human king. I disagree with that, and I don't really want to spend a lot of time in that argument. I think that what we read here in verses oh, 12 down to 19 is a description of somebody who can't be a human being unless it's outrageously figurative language. And even if it is, you say, how can this be about a person, about a human? I think it's about Satan, and we will proceed on that basis. If you are not comfortable with that, 
I'm not calling you a heretic. Okay? There are people I respect who don't think that Satan is here. But I do think this is about Satan. Okay? We can't go through all the details, but let's hit some of them. In this passage, the description, Satan is called here the king of Tyre. He is said to be perfect in wisdom and in beauty. Now again, that's hard to be a human being. You are the seal of perfection, verse 12, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, verse 15. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until an iniquity was found in you. Now that one right there is hard to be a human being. We only know two human beings who went from sinless to sinful in history. Who were they? Adam and Eve. Every other human being started sinful. So this is hard to fit to a human being. Verse 13 says that he was created, not born. The same thing is said in verse 15. Verses 13 and 14 say that he was present in the garden of God. Verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. There's a description of those stones. You go down a little further. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. It seems to be describing Satan almost as a living musical instrument, like a pipe organ, which is kind of bizarre. But, And verse 14, it says, you were the anointed cherub who covers you are on the holy mountain of God. Now this, this little statement here, you are the anointed cherub who covers, let me tell you what I think this is about. And this, this is not heretical or that unusual, but I'll throw a little twist in. Some of you may have heard me say this before. Satan was apparently the angel whose role it was to be in the throne room of God and to cover his throne. He was like the umbrella over God's throne. And the point of that was that he was protecting God's holiness in some sense. Now what happened was that Satan fell. And what is interesting is that on the Ark of the Covenant, which is a representation of God's throne, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant is called the mercy seat. And symbolically, God sits on the Ark. Now, the Ark of the Covenant never had a carved figure for God, right? There's just empty space there. But the idea is that this represents the throne of the invisible God. How many angels are on the Ark of the Covenant? Two. One is like this, and one is like this, instead of just one like this. Now, my personal theory is that after Satan got a fat head, God decided, I'm never going to let that happen again. So he put two angels up there, so each one could look at the other one and say, there's at least one other angel in the universe who is exalted as I am, and neither one would fall into pride. Okay, I just made that up, but it kind of makes sense. Peter? Or, another, I don't know, I just thrown in something, maybe there was three, and there was only two, so a third of the angels fell? Possibly, well, yeah, they... I never thought about that, but I never had either. I yeah, that. it's worth chewing on. It's worth chewing on. But it seems like angels are cherubs also. Well, a, the cherubim, or which is just plural of cherub, it seems to be a kind of angel. Okay. 
Now, we think of cherubs and we think of fat little boys running around with no diapers and little wings coming around out of their backs, right? But that's not the picture of angels in the Bible, is it? Um, but there, there are cherubim, there are seraphim. Uh, oh, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, but anyway, Satan had some kind of special role in the throne room of God that was highly exalted, and he was apparently... How, how do I put this? He could see himself, and he could see how important he was, and in some sense, he couldn't see God. And somehow, he was able to convince himself that he deserved to take God's place. A very amazing thing. We're told... So do, do we need to get downstairs? Is it going to get here? So you want to stay? I mean, we can go home and watch our roofs blow off, or we can stay here and get home and see them when we get there. I'm willing to stay if you all are. Anybody want to move your car to prevent hail damage? No tornado is going to rip the roof off of this building, I don't think. Okay, Peter, maybe it will. I'd love to be... No, I don't want to be proven a false prophet. Is everybody... Let me put, the, put it this way. Anybody who wants to go home, you're more than welcome to do so. I'm willing to stick here because... These warnings usually tend to be overblown. All right, back to Satan. He was perfect and sinless until sin was found in him. Now, we're going to come back to this passage in a few moments, but let's go to Isaiah chapter 14. Okay? Isaiah 14, in verses 12 through 15, seems to be again doing something similar to what's happening in Ezekiel. You've got a human king who's spoken of, and then the transition seems to be speaking of Lucifer, probably as the power behind it. <clears throat> Let me just read through these verses in Isaiah 14:12 through 15. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Now that word Lucifer is just day star in Hebrew. And by the way, Christ is called the morning star in scripture it's not quite the same word day star and morning star but they're fairly close what, what does it say it says well okay well, he, I, there's a place where Christ is called the star of the morning right I can't remember where it is but I, 
I think what's being said, I think the point that's being made here, and, you know, we're not going into Mormonism and saying that Christ is Lucifer's brother or anything like that, okay? I think the point that's being made in the use of this kind of terminology is to show what an amazing creature Lucifer was. He was beautiful. He was intelligent. He was musical. He was exalted. He was the highest thing that's ever existed in creation. But how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, and five times he's going to say, I will. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And then God says, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest level of the pit. Now, what you seem to see in these statements, again, if they speak of Satan, okay, and don't, the reason I brought up Lucifer there is don't look at that and say that's Satan's name, it's got to be about Satan, okay? The fact that we call Satan Lucifer is at least in part from this passage. So, you don't want to argue in a circle. I do think this is about Satan. Um, he wasn't content with the role that God had given him. He had an extraordinarily high and honorable role, but he chose to rebel against God and to try to take his place. He seemed to desire to rule over the angelic host when he says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, the stars of God is probably a reference to the other angels. He seemed to want to rule over all creation. And he seemed to want to usurp God's authority and worship. Now, I would get a little support from that by going back to Genesis chapter 3, where Satan impugns God's goodness and tries to get Adam and Eve to sort of join him in his rebellion. Um... I'd go to the temptation of Christ where Satan says, I'll give you the whole shebang if you'll just bow down and kiss my foot. Um, he really wanted that role. Now, the key verse in the understanding of his fall is back in Ezekiel chapter 28, 17. And we didn't read this yet. Let me read it to you. God says, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Now, you, you, you sit down and think about this for a while, and it's a pretty deep statement. Okay? Satan looked at himself, and he saw that there was nothing else in all the rest of creation like him. Now, personally, I don't believe he could see the glory of God in its fullness or he never would have come to that conclusion. But there was no other angel in all the universe, at least as far as he know, he knew that was as exalted as he was, and he became proud. That's what your heart was lifted up means. And then it says, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. It's like he intentionally suppressed the truth that he knew that he was just a created being so that his pride could swell. You know, in a way, he sort of worshipped himself. 
And when he did that, he went from being holy and sinless to being sinful. And that event is what led to us being what we are today. I believe that event was the origin of sin. Yeah. What do you see on the What do you see on the phone, Gary? I see Isaiah 14. Good for you. Good for you. Okay. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Satan's nature, and, and you know, some of this is redundant because it's very much like the other angels, but it's important to re to hit it again. Satan is a created and immortal, but not eternal being. By the way. In a sense, we are immortal, aren't we? We're immortal. Our souls are immortal. Our bodies are not immortal. But we are immortal. We started at a point of time and we will continue forever. But God is eternal, right? Which means he goes backward in time and over time and outside of time and all those things in a way that's different than us. Satan is non-reproducing. Yeah, he's a non-reproducing spiritual being having the traits of personality like other angels he is not equal and opposite to God now there are a lot of religions in the world that are based on the concept of dualism we've talked about this before in one of our classes dualism is the idea that the universe is is motivated by the interaction of two equal and opposite forces okay like the yin and the yang in oriental philosophy or like the dark side of the force and the light side of the force in Star Wars you know um, there are a lot of religions that view Satan sort of as the evil god and God as the good god and they're battling okay there is no it's getting noisy out there isn't it there is no uh, equity between God and Satan. God is the uncreated, eternal creator. Satan is just a creation. And, of course, one of the questions that you might want to ask is, if Satan was just created and he's so much trouble, why didn't God just vaporize him? And I think the answer is that God will use Satan's folly to glorify himself. Okay, some of the names of Satan. He's the name Satan means adversary. He's called a liar. He's called the ruler of this world. He's called the god of this world. He's called the destroyer or Apollyon. He's called the serpent of old. He's the accuser of the brethren. Okay, those are just some of his names. There are more in your notes. Let's talk quickly. Any questions up to this point? You know, a lot of this stuff, what we're doing, is just sort of pulling together information that you already know, but it's kind of neat to get it in one place and, and look at it together. Satan's work toward unbelievers. Okay, he blinds the minds of unbelievers. This is a big one. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe 
lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now, in a sense, this is saying that Satan has a preventative program. He doesn't want to let people hear and believe the gospel. He doesn't like that. Now, it's important not to push this too far. Um, we are all born into Satan's system. We don't all worship indirectly, but we're all part of the cosmos, the world system. When a person becomes saved, his identity, his allegiance, his citizenship is transferred from this world to heaven. Philippians says we are citizens of heaven, right? Satan doesn't like that. I think the reason he doesn't like it is basically that it shows yet another victory of God over him. He's seeing people plucked out of his realm and brought into God's realm by salvation. It's not so much, at least in my, in my opinion, it's not so much that unbelievers worship him, but every time an unbeliever gets saved, what is it doing? It's another slap in the face of Satan saying, you're going to lose, baby because the one you're up against is defeating you step by step all the time. And he doesn't like that. Luke 8.12 speaks about Satan taking away the word. Now exactly how that works, I don't know. But he can be involved in distracting people from recognizing the truth of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of believers, I'm sorry, unbelievers being led into dead works. And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Who is that? It's Satan. Okay? We didn't know it. I never knew that I was an agent of Satan before I was saved, but scripture says I was. That I was following his agenda. Do you think that Satan knows who will be saved? I doubt it very much. I, I doubt that he has access to that information. He's not on mission. No. He doesn't know what you're thinking. Yeah, I don't, I don't think he can read our minds, but I think he's extraordinarily intelligent. And I think, you know how some people can sort of read a person by looking at them? Well, just think if you'd been around for 6,000 years or however long it's been observing human behavior. I mean, he could tell a lot by watching us. No, it hasn't, but he's an expert. I mean, think about it. Approach? Sure. I think you're right. He understands human nature and he's good at using it to his advantage. Um, Colossians speaks about Satan's work in deceiving people by philosophy, empty philosophy, and worldliness. 
and there are a number of passages in Daniel and in 1 Thessalonians that speak about his work in deceiving the nations. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. That just means that he deceives a whole lot of people. Does he have a special role affecting governments? I'm not quite sure of that. Um, And I have not studied it in depth. But he does a lot toward unbelievers. Are any of these things good? Obviously not, right? Okay. His work towards believers. Well, we know from Ephesians 6 that he and his demons wage spiritual warfare. 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us that he's like a roaming lion seeking whom he may devour. Revelation chapter 12 says that he accuses the brethren before God. In Job 1 and 2, we've got Satan doing what? Slandering Job before God. Job was a believer. Job was a godly man. And Satan goes in and he slanders him. Um, At least in the case of Eve, one of the ways that he worked was first by planting doubt in her mind, right? I suspect that he continues to use that strategy. Um, Let's see. Opposing evangelism. Where is this? Let's look at this one. Matthew 13. I don't remember the details of this. Oh, okay. He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Maybe opposing evangelism isn't quite the right terminology. I might change that a little bit, but what is Satan doing? Satan is planting his people among God's people. And that's one of the reasons why we are warned to protect the church and to examine those who come in and not to allow people to minister without supervision. That even includes our elders. We're told to keep an eye on them because Satan is planting his spies and moles. His next... You better keep watching. (laughs) This next one, infiltrating the church, is is a little more specific statement, the same thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 speaks of his role in stirring up strife in the church. Um, I probably should put uh, Ephesians chapter 4 there. Don't allow the devil to get a foothold. You know, sin among the believers gives him a place to cause trouble. And there's a whole lot in Scripture about the role of Satan in tempting believers to sexual sin, to lying, to love the world, to trust human wisdom rather than God's wisdom, to go into spiritual pride and to be discouraged. So he does a lot of damage. Now, I think that it's probably safe to say that there are some places in Scripture that talk about Satan doing things where what is meant to be communicated is that it's Satan and his demons. Satan is like the general and he's got all these demons underneath him and they're all doing his bidding. You know, I've been tempted in my life many times 
and probably by evil spirits, I doubt Satan has ever bothered to come visit me personally. I just don't think I'm that important. But he's got scads and scads of demons, doesn't he? So, he's got a lot of agents working for him. Did you ever, I don't know if you've ever read, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis's... Uh, like screw tape letters or something? Would you recommend that to a believer to think through or not? I, I think that stuff is good to read, but I think C.S. Lewis, does he does a lot of sort of sanctified conjecture. You know, I, I think stuff like that can alert you to things we need to think about, but, you know, we're not going to build doctrine on it, and, and that's, that's your point, and that's a well-taken point. David, there's a Apparently, I hadn't read it yet. I pulled it up, but on abc.com, there's a um, article entitled "Satan Really Exists," hmm. and it's supposed to be a pretty good article. Dan told me about it. Take well, it, it's not an article; it's a video, and it takes about an hour to watch it. But he said it was pretty good. Hmm. So that has to be Really? You seen it? Yeah. Is it worth watching? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That has to be That sounds good. ABC.com. See, that's what I was talking about earlier, though. We, are mo- we have moved out of the era of scientific materialism and the denial of anything that isn't physical. You know, the 20th century, into the 20th century, uh, 21st century, where people are very much interested in, to some extent attuned to, and very much afraid of spiritual powers. And then there are others who are just opening themselves up to anything that will come along. We've got Wicca and we've got this and that. Vicki? Well, I just wonder how you divide that because of James, it said, when some people know how they were Sure. What's the role of Satan? The, the best thing that I can say, Vicki, is that God holds us responsible for our response to temptation. So instead of worrying so much about where the temptation came from or how it started, I think our focus needs to be on employing his resources to say no to it or if it's gotten you know, if it's gotten rolling to to stopping it. Um, you know, you all remember Flip Wilson, right? The devil made me do it. You remember that? Um, yeah, right. Depends on how old you are. Um, I think it's I think it's a mistake to focus too much on Satan's role in temptation. I think we need to know it is there um, and not treat him lightly. But when we find ourselves in temptation, the one we need to turn to is to God for help, not to Satan to try to beat him off. Because we don't have any power to beat him off. We need to turn to God and get his help. I don't know if I answered your question. But, um, it, you know, we just don't have insight into those things. You know, where do those crazy ideas that come into your head come from? Do they come from Satan? Do they come from, you know, solar radiation firing a random synapse in your brain? I don't know. But when sinful thoughts come into my head, personally, I don't think, is Satan sitting over there doing that to me? I don't even bother with that. 
I think it's more important to deal with the thought, to turn to God, say, help me to deal with this in a godly way. Maybe as we would take that step into temptation, he, he would be Well, he can in a number of ways, I'm sure. I mean, sure, oh, he wants to. But again, what are our resources are the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, prayer, um, fellowship of believers, you know, the things that are laid out in Ephesians. And that's where we need to go. You know, and, and just like we have been greatly blessed not to know what our future is, I mean, suppose it's in God's plan for this roof to be ripped off and us all to die in half an hour. I'm much happier not knowing it. Okay? I'm, I'm, I'm also... You want to go to heaven? I'm also happy that we can't see spiritual beings. And I have met people who, through occult practices, have learned to see spiritual beings. And that's a horrible, horrible thing. Uh, the ones that I met were were unbelievers who had become believers and were still being harassed by these things. Yeah. And it's, you know... It's like once you've tasted cocaine, you're, you're never going to be ignorant of what it can do. You know, I've never tasted it, so I have no attraction to it. I have a brother who is a cocaine addict, and he knows what it can do, and he's got to work hard to stay away from it. It's, it's kind of like that. Okay, I think we can finish up, and we'll take our break. I think this is the last slide. Satan is not the king of hell. He has never been there. He does not wait down there to hand you a shovel when you show up at the door. Hell is the place of his future punishment, not his present reign. He does have a kingdom, and his kingdom is what? It's here. We live in it. He does have fallen humanity in his power in some sense. In particular, Hebrews chapter 2 speaks of the fear of death holding people in bondage. And he wants us to stay afraid of death. He doesn't want us to know that Christ has defeated death. But when a person comes to Christ and learns that Christ has defeated death, death no longer has the power to hold us in bondage. He will one day lose his kingdom to Christ. That's what the book of Revelation is really all about. It's about the transfer of power from Satan to Christ and how God will accomplish that. Satan's eternal destiny is destruction at the hand of Christ. Genesis 3.15 predicted it. God speaking to Satan said, The seed of the woman will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Well, who wins in that battle? It's the seed of the woman. It's Christ. It's doom in the lake of fire. Okay. We'll take a ten minute break. How many of you have seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life? Just go home and think about that movie a little bit and, and compare it to the things we've been studying. And maybe next time we'll have some time to talk about that. Okay? Let's take a break until 10 minutes to 8.